The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, Episode 69. Welcome to The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. I'm your host, Dr. Yishai Barkadari, psychologist and adaptability coach to entrepreneurs and business leaders. I believe that working on your business is more important than working in your business. If you want to achieve your business goals and dreams without the cost and pain of having to make every mistake yourself, then The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is the podcast for you. I'm here to help you learn from the lessons of entrepreneurs and business leaders to help you work on yourself and your business so that you can save time, energy, and grow faster. For those of you new to the show, The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai presents three new episodes each week. On Insight Sunday, we dive into the minds of business leaders through insightful guest interviews. On Story Tuesday, we dig deeper with them and learn firsthand from their stories, hard-earned lessons, and experience. On Thrive Thursday, it's just you and me on the couch, where you'll hear scientific research, my thoughts, and tangible tactics to adapt and grow yourself and your business. Grab a proverbial seat and listen up so you can learn from the minds and mistakes of business leaders and apply their wisdom to your life and business. Welcome to Thrive Thursday with Dr. Yishai. This week on the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, I had Danielle Cuomo, innovative leader, founder, and owner of Virtual Assist USA, which has helped thousands of companies over the past 12 years stay on track, focused, and growing. In episode 67, Danielle shares her story and passions that led her to found Virtual Assist USA to help entrepreneurs get out of their own way, get a handle on operations, and get growing. She also talks about her process in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and their businesses determine how and what to outsource to reduce their overload and engage maximally in their zone of genius. In episode 68, Danielle shares lessons she learned before the pandemic about how to create connection, collaboration, excitement, and engagement in virtual working environments so that both her team and clients have the very best experience and results. Danielle also shares lessons about factors that can get in the way of successfully outsourcing and growing businesses. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to episodes 67 and 68 to learn from Danielle's story, experience, and wisdom. Last week in episode 66, I talked about how you can hack your emotions to engineer adaptation for yourself your business, your teams, and your life. Today in episode 69, I'm sharing examples by way of case studies so you can see how to apply the perspectives, tools, and tactics I covered last week. Before we dive in, I wanted to share that the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is brought to you by Adaptability Coaching and Consulting. If you lead a six or seven plus figure business and experience a drag or dip in your growth, if you notice diminishing engagement or passion in your business, If you want to eliminate exhaustion and burnout in yourself or your teams, if you sense that you or your company would grow faster and stronger if you could just pivot efficiently and effectively when circumstances change like they had so much in 2020, then you've got an adaptability problem. 
Adaptability coaching and consulting will give you and your business the psychology and neuroscience-backed tools to understand and leverage core adaptability skills through the unique 3D adaptation framework. You can learn to harness and leverage core adaptability skills to grow yourself and your company. You can learn to become fast, flexible, and formidable. You can learn to turn tough circumstances, reactions, and exhaustion into energy, excitement, and excellence for you and your company. To learn more, go to dryishai.com slash coaching or dryishai.com slash consulting. Now, without further ado, let's dive into case studies for engineering adaptation. To quickly review, last week I laid out the foundational questions and processes to engineering adaptation for yourself, your teams, and your business. It followed four categories with questions to guide your intent and direction. First, behavior. What actions and outcomes do you want to see in yourself, your teams, or your clients? Second, emotion. What emotions would help draw attention, direct, and motivate the desired actions and outcomes? Third, circumstances. What situation might generate that emotion or those emotions to pull yourself, your teams, your clients, really activating that emotion and encouraging that kind of action. Fourth, engineering. How can you create that situation or set of circumstances? I used a brief example that I want to flesh out a little bit more as the beginning of our case study by pointing out a failure to engineer adaptation and the consequences it created. Over a year ago, I was on a call with a senior VP who was experiencing frustration and worry. He'd been working very hard for years to source and entice the best talent to join their company. They had poured resources into the initiative because it was their recipe for the company's growth. Get better people, get better results, get more growth. Now this VP had noticed that over half of the work at the company was done by less than 10% of the people there, the highest performers. He himself was one of them. That's how he managed to move up to senior VP in a few short years from just above entry level into middle management and all the way up to that senior VP position. In fact, he wasn't nearly done with what he wanted out of and for himself when it comes to his work. But that's a topic to touch on or talk about another time. Because on this call, he talked about how much time, energy, and training he put in to learn to identify the highest performers and along the way made a lot of mistakes, lessons he learned from in trying to get them to join the company, to join his teams. But after all that work, they would stay as little as six months and max out at a couple of years before leaving. The cream of the crop, the A and A plus grade people kept slipping through his fingers. And it was a triple headache. First, because of all the time, money, and resources spent to get the most treasured talent. Second, because it would take several months to train and really get them up to speed. Third, because after a short while, they would just up and leave. The cycle was costing the company a ton of resources in hiring, training, and then losing all the productivity when high performers left, which was also overloading the rest of the teams. 
especially because those who stayed often were the B and C grade people, those who did enough not to get noticed either way, but really didn't overperform. It meant that there were short bursts of getting tons of projects done and taking on increasing responsibilities, followed by serious avalanches of work that overtaxed the rest of the team, or projects that would just get dropped and not completed. The worry didn't stop there, though, because the roller coaster of productivity wasn't just draining time and money. It was straining the rest of the team, and there were whispers of people saying the entire team could collapse any day, which brought the issue and the complaint to my ears. The senior VP, frustrated and worried as he was, posed a question that he desperately needed an answer to. Why do all the ambitious high performers keep leaving? It's a familiar story and a familiar question to me. I've heard it over a dozen times. I started by flipping the question around on him. Why would an ambitious high performer choose to stay at your company or anywhere else? And for a moment he was stumped, but then he recovered quickly. Because we pay them well and we treat them well from the start. He began defending himself. I learned to spot one a mile away, and I scoop them up from a job where they're underpaid, underutilized, and underappreciated. He obviously wasn't incapable, so I made an observation. You find people whose companies don't see and give them the opportunities they are thirsty for, who keep them back. You find people who are seeking better. Exactly, he exclaimed. They should be more appreciative and loyal. And then I asked him to reflect on it. Does the company have a fast lane for them to keep growing? Do you have a path ahead for them? No. Why? He was even a little taken back by the question. So I offered another perspective. So they stay 6 to 24 months with you, long enough to grow into the newer, bigger opportunity you've offered them. And when they run out of space to grow ambitiously, they don't stop being ambitious or thirsty for more. He took a few beats to ponder what I was saying. Good point. I needed him to understand how he was engineering the circumstances, and the consequences that followed were not only logical, they were almost inevitable. You find ambitious, fast-growing, high-performing hermit crabs offer them a bigger shell to move into, and then you're offended when they outgrow this new shell and leave your shell of a position for a bigger and better one to grow into. And... You're not thinking and putting time and energy into carving out that path, making more room for them to grow. Now I stuck my finger on how problematic the circumstances were and how he and the company had unintentionally engineered that. But I still needed to spell out how to remedy the situation. I needed to show him how to engineer something different. You want to keep them? Spend more time, energy, and resources on carving out room to grow. Don't just offer a bigger job to start. Lay the bricks for the road to their dreams. They will stay on your road only as long as it's going in the direction they are and will help them get to where they're going. But he was skeptical and a bit resistant. I don't have the time or energy to do that. That's a ton of work. And of course I countered, of course it is. You think keeping ambitious high performers in any organization is a lazy or easy endeavor? Look, it's your choice what you do. I'm just answering your question for why they leave and when they do. You can recognize what they want 
and how they have to approach it under the circumstances. They want to grow continuously. And when they run out of room, it becomes uncomfortable to the point of pushing them to find a bigger and better goal and path to keep growing. You can choose to be that for them or not. Your time with them is numbered by that growth opportunity and growth rate, which is why people who grow more slowly or don't prioritize that kind of growth stick around much longer. That was the decision point, the fork in the road. I had pointed out and illuminated the process by which he and the company was getting the behaviors and outcomes that they were. It was then up to them to decide what to do. Engineering adaptation isn't an effortless endeavor. It takes intention and resources. Often the question is whether it is viewed as worthwhile. What if the company could be ever-growing, ever-expanding, and full to the brim of ambitious high performers who had support and space to keep growing themselves and the company? What if new divisions, new directions, new markets could be continually opening up? Obviously, there are limits and other factors to balance out. At the same time, when we just let circumstances play themselves out, we're choosing not to engineer the adaptation we want. And often the results are, at least in part, contributed to by those choices or lack of intentional time, effort, energy to make those choices and follow through with them. On the other hand, it can be easy to allow growth or the possibility of growth to pull you, your teams, or the business in so many directions that you're spread too thin. For entrepreneurs, that can look like chasing too many shiny objects in the quest for growth. It's a fast way to overload and overwhelm yourself. Staying in that is a recipe of circumstances that can somewhat predictably lead to burnout. For companies, leadership, and teams, it can look like cramming too many initiatives or picking up too many new directions and experimental projects. Often we need to balance them. That balance, like everything else, can be framed as the other side and can be likewise engineered in terms of adaptation. I once heard that the companies most committed to keeping their people excited, engaged, and motivated to come in every day and do their best work day in and day out consistently ask the following question. What's one thing that would make this job your dream job? And then they follow it up in any way they reasonably can to make that happen. It's a solid start. It's like asking what the work environment that is most exciting, engaging, and motivating looks like so that you can create it for your teams or even individual people. Slack is a company that represents another example with several powerful adaptations engineered into it. First, a little bit of backstory. Slack began as a gaming company with over $17 million in funding raised. But their game, Glitch, was short-lived. It had an incredibly engaged but small following, and most users bounced out within a few minutes of trying it. When the CEO, Stuart Butterfield, decided to shift gears, it was with less than a third of their funding remaining. Because what they had engineered and worked on so hard as a game was not getting traction in a sustainable way. It wasn't leading to the kind of consumer and user behavior 
that they wanted or needed to be sustainable as a business. But several core decisions made all the difference. First, Butterfield decided to shut the game down before completely running out of money, allowing him to decide and dedicate substantial time, money, and resources to helping everyone at the company search for and find new jobs. It wasn't an easy decision. In fact, Butterfield cried when he announced it. It was also not a random or simply self-serving act. It was an act of engineering adaptation. Butterfield chose to invest in resume coaching. He had a website developed and built to showcase the talent of all the developers, designers, and everyone. He made sure they knew how much he cares about them. And that's an extension of how he thought about and treated the people who were working at the gaming company before they pivoted into Slack. He did the same for the small but deeply invested users of Glitch. They continued creating the experience in-game for farewell feasts and goodbye parties to various parts of the game as they were shutting it down. He showed each user and the whole community how much he cares for their experience and what matters to them. He and his teams took several months to ask what they've developed that may be useful to work on and create moving forward. The reason they did that was because they offered to return the investment and the investors, rather than just taking a two-thirds loss, asked what he might be able to develop that could make their investment worthwhile. And so he made the choice again to try to give them what they wanted. The answer that came to him as he talked with and brainstormed and tried to come up with many ideas, quite a few of which he said were not great. It was in the collaborative messaging technology that they had developed to work within the company, within and between teams to share progress and direction as they were working on the glitch game. That software was the forerunner to Slack, whose adoption was blisteringly fast. But that's not even because they got it perfect the first time. They kept gathering data on the experience and needs, using that data to plot their direction ahead, and driving towards addressing the needs and issues of the user base while hitting the brakes on everything that was not useful or was not responded to well. Ultimately, that comes down to listening, iterating, rolling out updates and features to create the experience and environment that served the needs of the users. And I want to point out that Butterfield treated his teams and his people this way. He treated his investors this way. And he treated the users of Glitch this way. And then when they pivoted into Slack, he treated those users the same. Now, if you heard the three Ds in there, it's because... Butterfield was engaging in and engineering the adaptation that became their success. Inside the company, between the company and its users, 360 degrees. Many of the people who had to find other jobs came back to be developers at Slack. They utilized a lot of creatives, and they even kept features from the glitch game 
that they had used to show users around in the game world because it was so helpful to learn to navigate the inner workings of what became Slack. Butterfield learned from what could easily be described as failure to pay attention to the three Ds, to listen, consider, engineer the circumstances, and achieve the desired experience, reaction, and behavior. In short, he learned to engineer adaptation inside the company, with the investors, and with users. For him and for Slack, it created wild success. And while that isn't always the case, it is deeply important to understand how those choices and the intentional shaping of circumstances contributed to the way that the failing game glitch pivoted to become wildly successful as enterprise software in Slack. I hope from these examples, you can start getting an idea for how you can pivot effectively by engineering adaptation. To recap, today I shared case studies as examples for engineering adaptation for yourself, your teams, and your company. Every choice and every circumstance will affect the way that we, our teams, and our clients experience the business. Those experiences will translate into emotions, the response that provides data, direction towards or away, and drive in the form of increased or decreased motivation. It's not that you can control everything, and the purpose is not total control or manipulation. It is to recognize how emotions are a process and how we can shift that process with the right intention and decisions. And on that note, I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today on The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. If you enjoyed today's episode, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It helps grow the show and gives more people like you the ability to learn and grow. You can also click the share button to share today's episode directly with someone you know who would enjoy it. The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai podcast artwork is made by Sam Barkadari, show notes by Yishai Barkadari, and music by www.purple-planet.com. The advice and opinions of the host and guests are our own. I'm a psychologist, but not your psychologist. The conversations and content of this podcast do not contain or create any psychology practice, diagnosis, or therapist-patient relationship with either the guest or the listener. So do your own research before using anything from this podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember, our thoughts and reactions affect our actions. By listening, we can learn from the challenges others face and the choices they make so that we can make better decisions and get better results. 